This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 603 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jason Earle. Now, Jason is an expert in the world of mold and is the founder of 1-800-GOT-MOLD. And this is a topic I haven't yet discussed on this podcast, but actually is very pertinent. I certainly had an issue with mold in my previous home. I've worked in multiple fire stations that definitely were riddled with the stuff. And also, after a fire, we expose homeowners' homes to moisture, therefore the potential of mold. So we discuss a host of topics around this subject, but as happens so many times with these guests, Jason also has a very, very powerful mental health story and overcoming addiction. So that becomes the other side of this incredible conversation. Before we get to this episode, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jason Earle. Enjoy. Well, Jason, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me very much. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this glorious afternoon? I'm in sunny, balmy Minnesota. Sunny today, but not balmy, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, just relocated from New York City about a year ago. Um, so I'm still getting adjusted to this, uh, this climate. And it takes some adjusting, that's for sure. So I would love to start at the very beginning. And you, you obviously have a very powerful early childhood when it comes to what you ended up doing as a profession, you know, the some other elements of the family dynamics. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. I, um, I was born in central New Jersey, almost exactly equidistant between New York City and Philadelphia in a little town called West Windsor. Actually, I, we were not in even a little, uh, an even smaller town called Edinburgh, um, and a little rural area surrounded by farms. We had a, a little hobby farm, sort of a non-working place where we we just rescued animals. Um, my mom, my mom had a, a my, my my aunt used to say that there was a sign over our house that uh, no one else could see, or that we couldn't see, but everyone else could see, which was, you know, the the Statue of Liberty. There's some language that says, "Bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, your need to breathe free." So there were people who would just show up at our house with animals, and you know, occasionally with humans that needed help. And my mom was just that sort of open-hearted nurse. Um, and so, uh, so when I was about four years old, um, I had, uh, suddenly uh, developed a bunch of respiratory issues. Um, and I was, um, brought to the, to the, to the pediatrician who said that uh, they should actually bring me to the hospital. I'd lost 30% of my body weight in a three week period. And, um, and I was having all sorts of difficulties. And so they brought me to children's hospital in Philadelphia. 
um, which is a renowned respiratory clinic. And, um, and based upon the symptoms that I presented with and, and family history, uh, they suspected that I had cystic fibrosis. In fact, they diagnosed me with cystic fibrosis on the spot. And so that was clearly a devastating blow. My parents had, you know, I was an only child and my, my dad had lost four of his cousins to cystic fibrosis before the age of 14. So it, this hit really close to home for him and uh, doesn't hit much closer. And so six weeks later, they had a second opinion. And uh, fortunately, uh, and evidenced by the fact that I sit here in front of you at 46 years old, uh, I do not, did not have cystic fibrosis. Actually, what I had was asthma compounded by pneumonia. And uh, when they tested me for allergies, which was one of my formative memories, they put me in like a papoose, kind of a straight jacket for kids toddlers and uh, drew a grin on my back and then they exposed you to all the allergens. And um, my dad said, I look like a ladybug, just a big swollen red back with, with dots all over it. And um, I tested positive for every single thing that they tested me for. So <clears throat> grass, wheat, corn, eggs, dogs, cats, cotton. So clothes, sheets, you know, soybeans. Um, and I was grew up on a, that little farm, you know, surrounded by all those things in abundance. And, uh, so needless to say, it was, it was an itchy, it was mostly, I had a lot of, a lot of dermal sensitivities. I was constantly always itchy. Um, and, uh, you know, the family dynamic was, was, was a challenging one. I look back at my childhood very fondly, quite frankly. Um, there might be a little bit of delusion there. I, I, I was basically raised by wolves that my parents were rarely around. Um, so I, I was basically left with, you know, I was a latchkey kid. I came home and did whatever I wanted for the most part. Um, and I spent a lot of time outside a lot of time. And I don't know if that was intuitively uh, uh, driven um, because uh, the indoor environment was so challenging. My parents also had a, my, 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 I grew up with a long heritage of alcoholism. I mean, it runs deep um, and my parents, you know, grabbed that and ran with it too. So, um, so there was a whole lot of that as well. And there was, you know, the mental health issues, um, driven, I think in large part by alcohol, but also that were somewhat latent, I believe in retrospect. Um, so, you know, my parents didn't because they weren't around and because, uh, we had too many animals, the dogs and cats had their way in the house. They used it as a litter pan. Uh, it began in the basement. And then over time, as the dynamic in the family got worse, um, we start to see that it would, it would, they were starting to use the living room and the dining room as a litter pan. And then it used to get cleaned up and then it wasn't getting cleaned up. And then next thing you know, the whole house was a litter pan and I couldn't have friends over. And it was that, that that's when things had gotten, that's when childhood was over for me. And what age was <laughs> that? Some, uh, 12, 10 and a half to 11, fifth grade. Um, and that's also when they told me that they were getting a divorce, which, I remember poo-pooing my friends who were all upset that the parents were getting a divorce. And then uh, it took me years to, to look back and realize how, how truly devastating that is to a kid. Um, even if your parents are fighting, that's what you're used to. Um, and the idea that they would be gone somewhere else is just really, it hits to the core. And um, so uh, my mom had already uh, uh, made an attempt on her life at that point. Um, and then uh, shortly thereafter, um, another time my dad, uh, flew the coop to go off with his, uh, his intern from the newspaper, little local newspaper that he owned. And, uh, they went off and, and, and had another baby. And, uh, my mom and I were, were kind of fight at each other's throats, uh, until, uh, I was around 14 and then she kicked me out. She, they kicked me out quite a bit. I was, a, I was a difficult teenager. Um, but then, uh, uh, the last time she kicked me out, I didn't want to move back in. Um, 
because it'd been too many back and forths. And, it, and I had a little brother now that I wanted to get to know. And uh, we had a, uh, a big fight actually in front of my grandmother's house, her mother's house. She lived right across from the high school. So I would go there to work for my uncle after school, my uncle, my, 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 my mother's brother. And uh, one day she came over to try to, to convince me to move back in. And, um, and we got into some you know pretty heated words and, you know, she said, well, fuck you then. And I last night, I don't, I, don't, I never want to see you again. And I said, well, fuck you too. And she gets in the car and drove home and killed herself. Um, and so I, I, I it, it took a couple of days before I, I learned of it because she didn't show up to work, um, the next day and, uh, someone else showed up to, to, because they, she'd never missed a day of work. She was just a super, um, focused and diligent professional, um, as the administrator of the hospital she, where she worked. And so, um, so they, they came into school and to, to, to let me know my dad, actually, they pulled me out of class and I walked into to the classroom. <laughs> I walked into the principal's office. I figured, Oh boy, am I in trouble? They must have found weed in my locker or something, you know. Like I must be in real trouble. And I walk in there, my dad and my psychologist. And so anyway, that was that was that was it. That was a very challenging time. Um, because you know, there was it was everything changed at that point. But it was within a few weeks of that, um, after the denial all settled in, that I realized that um, first of all, it wasn't my deal. Um, that was her deal. And that she had done what she what she attempted to do was to come over and cut ties with me. It was she. It was already. It was a third time. She was she she was she was committed to this, and I I was the last thing holding her here. And um and and I and I was also experimenting with psychedelics at the time. So quite frankly, I would say I was using them. Um and and it, something settled in pretty quickly around that. Um and I and I credit the psychedelics. It took me years, decades actually, to look back at it and say, why did that make sense so quickly for me? But I, I reordered things in my mind about about her loss and realized that first of all, I, I developed a, a stronger relationship with the universe. And I really, really truly believe that my relationship with her is better now than it ever was. Um and it even got it it was it healed very quickly because um I saw that she had lost perspective. And what it did was it took me and reordered my perspective. And from the, within a couple of weeks of her death, I had developed a sense of optimism uh, and gratitude that has only gotten stronger and deeper as I've gotten older. Um, because her failure has never lost, has never, has never lost my view, my mind's view. It's never left my heart. And so, so in many ways, her death was the greatest gift that she could have ever given me. In fact, the way she died, in fact, um, it made it so poignant that, that, uh, that I just thank her every day. Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing now as I progress through the years of doing this podcast, like the courage that people have when they tell, you know, these kind of stories, because there is an element of courage in the world that we live in. It's not, you know, an easy conversation, but so many people have, have these discussions. And what's really interesting about yours, firstly, I mean, the heartbreaking element that you lose a mother, well, technically both parents, you know, one, one goes and has another family and then the other one takes her own life. But I have had people on here that have had so much success with psychedelics, but we're talking after the fire service, after becoming, you know, after leaving the Navy SEALs or, and so to hear that accidentally be therapeutic 
so soon in a young man. I mean, that again, in, in a way, is a testament for the power of sadly something that's illegal at the moment in our country, which needs to change. But, but again, such a different lens of the same, uh, therapeutic than I've heard from all these people that did it after all their trauma. I, I cannot emphasize enough how, how much I think that that, um, reset things for me. Um, and because it was, you know, accidental, so to speak, uh, I've wondered, in fact, many people have asked me, you know, how'd you get over that? And it took me a long time to, to really connect the dots. And I thought I was just maybe lucky, or I honestly, at some point thought, man, I, I must be missing something here. You know, seriously, like, why am I not more upset about it? Why am I not so distraught? And, um, and really it, it comes from a knowing that you get from those experiences that you can't get from listening. You can't, it's not knowledge, it's wisdom. And, you know, knowledge can be taught, but wisdom can't, it can only be experienced and, and absorbed. So um, that's, I think what, th what those substances do is they bring you to a place and give you an experience that can't be unlearned. Um, give you a glimpse into something uh, that's so powerful and then, and then leave and then leaves quietly and allows you to hold that shape, that new shape that your mind is, is in. And once you're in, in that, that shape never, it never goes back to the old way. Um, and, and that's the gift. And sometimes it's so subtle, you don't feel different, but boy, you're very different. You know, like you said, it's just different lens. Um, and it's such that you can't see that lens, right? Just like you can't look at your own eye, um, but you see through it and it's a clearly a different perspective. And so, um, so that, that was, that was 14. And then I, a year later I got di diagnosed with Lyme disease. Um, and that was, uh, that was a, a challenge because I, I still don't know if I actually had Lyme disease but I got diagnosed with it and I got treated for it. So I got a huge amount of antibiotics, which caused a whole ripple effect of gut issues, my microbiome issues and gut, and gut health stuff. Uh, but it also caused me to miss a lot of school. And I was already kind of a recalcitrant teenager. So I didn't like to go to school. I showed up pretty much to, to hang out with the girls and to, you know, just to see my friends. Um, and uh, so I kind of frequented school, if you would. Um, but infrequently. And, uh, but because I missed so much school and they kind of didn't want me there, I didn't want to be, they, they essentially forced me to drop out of high school in my 11th, 11th grade. So I started working full-time at the gas station uh, where I met a guy who came in with a flat tire and it's a, it's a longer story um, for, maybe for another podcast, but in, in essence, he came and recruited me uh, because I fixed his tire and, and uh, uh, he was late for a meeting and it was, you know, it was just one of those fortuitous things. And he gave me a huge tip. And I asked him uh, when I saw him again later, I, I asked him if I could do him a favor. If there, I, I, It didn't make sense to me. He gave me a $50 tip for a $5 repair. And, you know, so I saw him a couple of weeks later and I said, Hey, Mr. You know, um, um, I don't know if you realize he gave me such a big tip. Um, he gave me a $50 bill for a $5 repair. And he says, well, I didn't have a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I, you know, I feel like I, I don't know. I felt, it felt awkward. And I said, well, you know, what do you do for a living? He said, I work on wall street. And I said, how about getting me a job? Uh, and he said, uh, Hey, you only get in life what you ask for. So call me by 9am tomorrow. Or don't ever bother calling me at all. So, um, so I wrote his number down in my hand and he started laughing because he, he, he pulled up his sleeve and he had stock quotes written all over his forearm. And he goes, you'll fit right in here, kid. So anyway, long story short, I, I, I called at 9 a.m. as he asked and I, and he asked me where I was going today. And I said to work and he said, where? And I said, the gas station. And he said, wrong answer. And I said, can we do that again? And he said, sure. What are you doing today? I said, going to work. He said, where? And I said, what's your address? <laughs> and, uh, 
So I put on my finest pair of penny loafers with my my dad's actually and stuffed some tissues in the toes. I, I just I was put on my finest pair of jeans for my Wall Street interview, and I flip flopped my way up to Wall Street. Um, I lived by by one of the train stations outside of New York, um, and so I uh, went up there and 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 uh, and he took me under his wing. Um, and you know I was 16 years old. I had no business being in that business, uh, but he he saw me as a blank canvas, as a as a hunk of clay, um, I think, and. Uh, and so he took me under his wing. He was the managing director of what became a notorious penny stock uh, scam firm, actually. And I, I didn't realize what quite quite what was going on there until later. I left without any unscathed, um, and I and I and I went on to um, uh, to to work, you know, with reputable firms and had a really nice career. I did that for nine years. In fact, I owned my own firm for two years at the end uh, when I was twenty five years old. Um, so I was the least likely person in all of my school to end up on wall street. Let me just tell you that. Um, certainly not, you know, I unknowingly at the time also, you know, at 17, I got my series seven license, which unknowingly made me the youngest licensed stockbroker in history, you know, with the series seven. Um, so that, that made me, uh, that was, that was a shock to everyone, especially me, uh, considering I failed algebra one, you know? So I had to repeat algebra one. So uh, all of this has been kind of a kind of a miracle upon a miracle because you know I would never have in a million years plotted out my course in that direction. Um, but the next turn after I left Wall Street, that was that was that was, that was a whole different ball of wax, and that's what brought me to here today. Yeah. Well, just going back to the childhood element, um, you talked about all the health problems that you had. You know the the um, the allergies, the Lyme the disease. You know diagnosis, quote unquote. Um, did you? Did you start seeing an improvement in your health as you progressed from childhood into adulthood? Oh yeah, sorry, I left. That's a very important uh, aspect here. So when I was twelve, uh, the, the I moved out, um, and uh, well, I moved out a few times. But when I finally moved out um, for for good, uh, my respiratory illness uh, all but disappeared. Um, and thank you for bringing me back to that. So I, I ended up uh, ha- all my wheezing went away. Uh, a, a lot of the, um, all the dermal stuff, all the itchy skin, most of my allergies, um, the outward manifestations of them, uh, went away. And, um, and interestingly now, at, since I've been out of that environment now, I mean, if it, it's been like this for, for 20 years, but, uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't test po- positive, uh, as, a, um, I don't positive to any allergies at all. Zero, none. So absent that moldy environment. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm abundantly healthy. I don't have, um, any, any of the telltale signs, signs of someone who, who had that kind of, a, of a symptom profile as a kid. And, um, you know, it's very clear in retrospect that, you know, we had a damp basement we had, you know, all of the, all of the things that I look for now professionally, uh, in, in our assessment business. And, um, and I also think, you know, when I look back at it now, and you think about what, what I've learned about mold and indoor air quality and how its impact on, on human health is that it, the huge part of, of, uh, of illness in general is inf- inflammation based. Um, and there's also all sorts of chemistry going on with the musty odor that, uh, that there's a research that shows that exposure to the musty odor uh, can actually uh, cause neurological issues, cognitive issues, depression. And some has been, uh, there's, there's a, a big study out of Brown University, um, 2007, Edward Shinasa, who found a direct correlation between mold and dampness indoors and depression. He didn't, he did, didn't identify a causal component or, you know, whether it was the 
disempowered nature of someone who has a mold problem and is reporting it and that doesn't have the ability to, they couldn't tell what caused what. But later on, Dr. Joan Bennett, who's a good friend of mine at Rutgers University, tested the musty odor on fruit flies and found that they stopped producing dopamine. They stopped reproducing. They start flying downwards instead of towards the light and they develop Parkinsonian-like symptoms. So um, subsequent studies have shown uh, neurological, additional neurological issues, as well as damage to the mitochondria. Um, through exposure to the musty odor. Um, so this thing that we used to think of as just an aesthetic nuisance, you know, your grandparents' basement smells like musty. It's just a musty basement is actually a health hazard and also has the potential to cause emotional dysregulation. And so I often wonder now if a lot of my mom's issues or even my whole house, really, I mean, I was a depressed kid, uh, circumstantially. Sure. Okay. I could see how, but I was also, I felt just the weight, the, there was a heaviness. Um, and I, and I sometimes wonder if she didn't just drink herself to death, but she breathed herself to death. You know. Now, the reason why that's so you know, important, I think is like I said, going back to that root cause. And, you know, I truly believe that Almost all deaths are preventable, you know, apart from, you know, the San Francisco earthquake or some of these things where you had no idea it was coming. And so when we look at mental health from the psychology point of view, as I've, you know, been this perpetual student now, things like childhood trauma, you know, really, really come to mind, um, you know, multi-generational trauma, organizational stress, sleep deprivation. I don't know if your, your mom as a nurse was working nights at all, or as you said, you know, had alcoholism and, and trauma generations prior. But another thing is, okay, well, what is, you know, nutrition? What are, what are the elements of pain, you know, back injury and now mold? So, so, you know, yeah, I'd love to you to expand a little bit more. And especially I heard you use the word mold rage, um, in yes. one of the interviews. So yeah, tell, tell me, tell me the, the psychological profile that has been attached to some of these mold exposures. So to explain mold, and how it impacts people in terms of symptoms and psychological. I think one of, I think we have to realize that you know um, VOC, my, microbial VOCs, the musty odor. Okay, that that scent is a potpourri of industrial solvents. Okay, so uh, the most common VOC or the most popular VOC is alcohol, right? You know anyone who that's a VOC. It turns into a gas at a specific temperature, liquid at another temperature. It's volatile. That's what makes it a volatile organic compound. And um, many of the compounds that are in the musty odor are, uh, are like I said, industrial solvents, uh, alcohols, ketones, aldehydes, various different kinds of, of um, benzene, for example, is, is commonly found coming from actively growing mold. These are carcinogens. Uh, they are also, I mean, if anyone's ever spent enough time in a, in a gas station or even in an auto supply shop, you know, you can get a little, little lightheaded. Um, so, you know, the chemistry is, is not, it's not, it's not hard to, to see how that would just the, uh, just the abundant chemistry, chemical, um, uh, um, byproduct of, it's like a factory, really. Mold growth is a factory of chemicals. Um, and some of them are airborne, some of them are not, uh, but none of them are good for your health. Mold's actually, its job is to break stuff down and turn it back into dirt. It's doing its job and if it's doing that in your yard, but not so much in your living room. And when it's doing that in your living room and it's producing these compounds, 
the first thing is that it's giving you a message. So listen, if you smell it, take action on that. If you smell something, do something. I always say, if you see something, smell something or, or feel something, do something. But also recognize that it's actually releasing these chemicals. And in many cases, those chemicals are designed to get rid of other things that might be competitive, right? So other molds, it's killing other molds. It's also trying to, if it had its way, it would just eat your whole house and you're in the way. Right. So anyway, a lot of the compounds that are coming off of these, uh, off of these, uh, off of uh, active mold trigger inflammation in the body and inflammation. Uh, actually, we have a, psych- a psychiatric clinic, a very, a very significant psychiatric clinic online that wants to prescribe our test kits for every single new patient, because what they're finding is that with the exception of people who are seeking help due to relationship issues, uh, there's a degree of inflammation in almost every case that they see. So that means, you know, uh, you know, whether, whether it be that they've got anger issues or whether there might be some sort of other, you know, personality uh, quirks that are causing, you know, outbursts or what have you, what they're finding is that inflammation is, is, is commonplace in all of these. And of course, where do you get inflammation? Well, so food is a, is a big one, obviously. Um, And by the way, a lot of people have mycotoxins, which is the mold toxin, blame it on just air. A lot of the mycotoxins you get in actually come from food. It comes from processed food. Um, you know, all the sugars and grains are, are processed and stored in such a way that molds grow on them. And we, America actually has lower thresholds for that, uh, higher thresholds, right? We, we will accept more moldy food at our ports than any other country, um, any other developed country, I should be, be clear. Um, and so, uh, so the mycotoxins and the, the mold toxins can trigger all sorts of dysregulation in the, in the, in the systems. In fact, I often think that mold is the great interrupter. Um, it, 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 it's like if your immune system's the guy that's juggling, I always think about the immune system as a juggler. Mold is like a guy across the room throwing baseballs at him. Every, every something's going to give, you know? And so, uh, so very common, the people who have um, a mold issue, uh, especially if they're, if they're, if that musty odor is, is lingering, uh, people will have sleep disturbances. It's a very common side effect. Um, so angry sleep too. Uh, and, uh, there's a, they're, they're very disturbed, uh, dreams in many cases. Um, ra- mold rage is a real thing. Um, it, there's, there's, a um, like I said, emotional dysregulation, uh, is, is extremely common and, um, just in general, cognitive impairment, brain fog, you know, this inability to make a decision. I know I need to do something. I just don't even remember what I need to do kind of a thing. You know, I know I have anxiety, the, the really like doom feeling that feeling that, that, you know, something's wrong. I just don't know what it is. So everything must be wrong. Uh, you know, something, something's coming my way. That's light at the end of the tunnel. No, it's a train. Um, and so that, that, those are all very, very common reports. And the problem with that is that most people don't pin, they don't think about mold or the indoor air quality. Um, and one of the things that, that I tried to, to express to people is that you've got four basic human needs, air, water, food, and shelter. And air is kind of the other side of the coin. Air and shelter are kind of, you know, two sides of the same coin. Um, And yet we're so focused on, you know, our food because we should be, it causes a lot of disease. Um, And water, obviously you need to drink that be pretty regular there. You're in trouble, but air boy, you don't think that much about it, but yet if you don't have it for a few minutes, you're in big trouble. And it's like that with most things, right? The things we take for granted, the things that we're most exposed to with people, relationships, you know, whatever we, that's the law of familiarity, whatever you're exposed to long enough, eventually you take it for granted. Air is the, can you think of anything that you're more exposed to? Absolutely right? not. 
Um, and so, so, you know, the thing about air that, you, that many people don't realize is that you're, you're not only is it your direct interface to the world, your direct interface, unfiltered interface, no, no, there's nothing else. This is, this is the way you taste, experience the world. You also do it an enormous number of times every day. If you breathe, the average person breathes 12 to 15 times a minute. And if you do the math on that, it's 20,000 times a day. So you do that more than almost anything else, except for your heart beating. And, and, and so, so, and you also have a lot of control over your indoor environment, whereas you don't have control over so many other things, certainly not the outdoor environment. And so this is what I encourage people to do is be aware of that and recognize that that is such a powerful route of exposure for good things and bad things. And that if you recognize that and make investments, it's a small investment, really. It's more of an investment in awareness, small investments in some equipment occasionally, maybe a service area there. But getting your healthy indoor air is something that will pay dividends for the rest of your life. It'll extend your life. Whereas if you don't make that investment, the, the, the penalties are also lethal. You will reduce your quality of life. It will reduce your family's quality of life. And you will uh, reduce the length of your life. It's that powerful. It's that, it's that binary, really, truly, in terms of it's, there's an investment that you can make. And the, 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 the ROI is huge and the failure to make that investment has huge penalties. It's just that it's, it's, it's like making a left turn or a right turn. It's a T in the, in the road. And most people just drive straight through, you know, they just ignore that. Um, but, but that's our mission here really is to help bring awareness to the subject. Well, it reminds me of the last place I lived. So when I moved to the States, um, let me see, we rented for a bit and then came back to Florida and Got one of the houses that was thrown up in the, you know, the housing boom before the big crash in 08. And, you know, seemingly brand new house, beautiful. You know, this is, this is, this is a great place to, to bring my family in and raise them up. And as the years progressed, I, I did everything. I stripped the floors. I stripped the walls. I mean, you name it. I, I, you know, down to just the, the drywall and the concrete again. And I could not get rid of this smell, this musty smell. And I went inside their handler, you know, and there's all kinds of gunk in there. God knows what I was breathing doing that. But um, when I look back now, my little boy had asthma most of his life. Um, and ironically, since he's moved out with CBD and some other things that we've done, um, his, his, you know, he barely even touches an inhaler anymore. So now I look retroactively at that environment. Now I'm already sleep deprived. I'm already working 24 hour shifts. I'm going through a divorce. So that's what I love about his conversations. None, none of these, you know, people that represent any of these kind of lanes are saying this is the only thing that causes suicide or, you know, whatever it is. But if you're not taking into account that as one of the variables, in my case, for example, I was probably missing a huge, a huge, uh, um, contributing factor to the, the ill health that was happening in, in the four walls that I was living in before. And I ended up losing that home. I, I got divorced and it ended up going, um, foreclosed. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And we talked earlier about finding, you know, the triumph out of tragedy. That was definitely one of them because honestly, I would have bulldozed that thing had I known <laughs> now what I know about, about all that stuff. And so even, a, you know, a seemingly brand new home like that, you know, can, can hide. I mean, I'm assuming that there was probably weather damage. It was in Florida. It probably got leaks somewhere. And, you know, despite all the, the things that I did to try and mitigate you know, what I thought would be the underlying issues, you know, it, it was the, as you've, I heard you talk about the mold I couldn't see that was probably going on. 
Yes. And by the way, there is no, and people like to think that a new house is going to be less prone to mold or an old house is more prone to mold. This is, these are myths. Um, new house, new houses are actually made of mold food. Uh, sheetrock is the, is, is like caviar from, from mold or, or lobster. It's just like, it, it's a, it's a, it's a delicacy and they, and it's abundant. Um, and so mold loves to eat new buildings. We build buildings out of paper mache essentially. Um, my mentor says we build self-composting buildings, just add water, you know, and he's, and he's right. Um, so there's, there's, you know, by the way, also doesn't know anything about geography really, because I'm in Minnesota. You think, oh, it's just cold. Well, cold makes condensation. So you get all sorts of weird stuff in the walls here down there. You have the opposite effect where you air conditioning inside, keep it so cold on the inside and hot, mo- hot, moist outside. You get condensation in the walls down there. So it doesn't really matter where you are, but we live in buildings that have these very, these environments that, that mold really likes a lot. All it's missing is the right amount of moisture. And so if there's a moisture problem, even for a short while, you know, it starts to grow. If you have moisture conditions, like a defect, for example, like you may have had in your Florida house, it could be systemic. Uh, and, and, and you'll never really truly know uh, where the source of it is because it's, a, it's, it's hiding in all sorts of interstitial wall cavities where you can smell it, but you can't see it. And even oftentimes testing results won't show up uh, positive. Oftentimes the spore counts will be normal because the mold's in the walls. Uh, and that's the most insidious type. Actually, the most insidious type you can't even smell. Uh, and that, that can happen too sometimes because of airflow is the way of building. So some, sometimes, you know, you may not see something or smell something. You may just feel something. Um, and in those cases, that's where, you know, you, you have to get into, you know, maybe sometimes bringing in a professional. But it is, it is, uh, profoundly, um, it is profoundly uh, uh, life-changing when you realize that the building that you trust to rest and raise your family and to rejuvenate is actually a source of illness. Um, and it brings up so many different feelings of guilt, you know, uh, uh, insecure. I mean, it's just really, it, it goes right. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You go right back to the bottom, you know, right back to the bottom. If your shelter is making you sick, then, then, um, and then as a parent, it's an awful feeling. Um, you know, as someone who's, who's, who's trusted to, to care for the people that are in those four walls. Um, and that's something I deal with a lot with people, you know, a lot, a lot of mold related illness is actually emotional, um, truly. Um, and it, and it's a, it's a vicious cycle because the more depressed you are about it, the worse it gets and, you know, the whole thing. So, um, but you know, the, the, the reality of it is, is that the, this is, you know, it, I think everybody could look back at their lives and find a place where, where they have overcome something and, and now what they've learned has become useful and that they can then turn this into something to, to uh, pay it forward. Um, and that's been my mission here with Got Mold is to, is to create products and services to help people uh, not have to go through what my family went through. Now, another thing that is very pertinent to this audience specifically, there are very few professions where the employees of that profession are told they have to go and sleep somewhere else. So the first responders, especially, you know, the firefighters, um, every third day, this is my career, I have to go sleep in someone else's building. And so you can be diligent in your own home and every third day you're at the mercy of a, a city or a county and how much value they put in, in that building. The military is another one, especially one of my, one of my English friends, the British army. I don't know if it's the same now, but the description of some of the barracks that they were staying in, I would assume that there was probably mold, you know, in there too. So talk to me about the, we've talked kind of touched on the psychological mental health element. What are the you know the the gamut of diseases or disease processes you've seen um, physiologically on on the the physical side from these exposures? 
Well, so first of all, pe- people who are working in, in public buildings, um, I hate to say it, but they have rights. Um, you know, th- there are public employee occupational safety and health um, um, workers in, you know, every city and, and nobody wants to ring that bell, but, uh, but this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a serious problem. I mean, and, and I understand what that, what that's like, it's a very political thing and it's difficult, but uh, it's very important that to, that to take action on those things for, for everyone's benefit. Um, but in, you know, even, even, um, before that, just looking at, do I have mold exposure? How am I feeling? You know, typical upper respiratory things are the are the the first uh, and most common symptoms. So hay fever-like symptoms, sinuses, sinusitis, congestion, um, any sort of coughing, wheezing. So what mold really likes to do is, if you've already got sort of a latent symptom profile, if you already have, you know, like a pre-existing, like like I said, I had allergies. I didn't. My allergies have gone away. It brought out the allergies. It, your immune system goes on high alert, and all these things come out. Um, and so, uh, so it's very typical for people to have recurrences of other things. Maybe even like arthritic conditions. People that suddenly develop a lot more. Again, inflammation is a really common side effect of mold exposure. Um, and so, things that cause inflammation cause everything to kind of get out of whack. Um, you know, there's also uh, lots of overlap between Lyme disease and the other tick-borne illnesses and mold. Um, chemical sensitivities are also really common with people that have uh, chronic mold exposure. Oftentimes, people have chronic mold exposure develop chemical sensitivities because the chemicals that are produced by mold, like I mentioned earlier, are, follow that sort of insolvent. They're sort of like solvent profiles. And, and so uh, I've seen consistently that people who spend lots of time in moldy environments become sensitized to things like just normal fragrances. They can't go to the grocery store, you know, go to the hardware store, forget it. Um, And, you know, those kinds of things are, are, are insidious um, because they also, they also don't, don't just go away. So let me, let me, let me make this point. That's also really important. Acute mold exposure, which means you get exposed to it and then you leave, will generally cause acute symptoms. They'll go away and you'll feel better when you leave. If you're spending a lot of time and you've got a chronic exposure to this stuff, it can change you. It can, it can, it can alter your body's immune system so that you, on your nervous system, so that you respond in a hypersensitized way. Um, and that's why people who have mold sensitivity will have, suddenly their sinuses will not just get congested, they'll shut down. Asthmatics, the respiratory shuts down. Mold does this, mold, mold, it sends the signal, there's decay in here. And I believe that on an evolutionary basis, mold is the beginning of decay. And so evolutionarily, we, especially the women in our society, uh, are, have an innate sense of, of being able to detect that that's there. And that's a problem as a threat to, our, to our, our health. And so you'll see that the diseases that have these kinds of, you know, the asthma where the airways shut down, the sinuses, they close down. Don't breathe that stuff. Don't breathe that stuff. So the chronic exposure will also create these hypersensitivities to things like I said, like chemical exposures. Um, and so, so it's very important when someone has something like that going on uh, that they reduce exposure, that they run towards whatever solution they can. I know you don't get a chance to choose what building you sleep in, um, but do whatever it takes in your power to, to get that corrected. Let me also emphasize something else. Mold is a moisture problem. That's it. Mold is a moisture problem. And so mold is not the problem. Mold is the symptom. 
It's the very predictable natural byproduct of something that gets wet and stays wet. And it happens quickly, two to three days. It's actually a, a four, 24 to 48 hours, according to the EPA. That's how long you have to respond to dampness or, or water problem that, that, that uh, um, uh, you have to either dry it out or, or, uh, or treat it. And so you got 24 to 48 hours before that's an issue. And according to the industry standard, at 72 hours, you have to take everything that's porous and absorptive that was wet and treat it like it's a mold, like it's mold, whether it's visible, whether there's visible mold or not. So in other words, the, the, the directives on, on how to deal with a mold problem are measured in hours and days. Whereas the problems that we talk about in typical buildings that have these issues are weeks, months, and years. Right. And so, so the time, these timelines need, you know, you have to bring that awareness to any of these issues that if a building has a must, a mold problem or a musty smell, find the moisture. That's the prime directive. And then get that corrected. The mold won't clean up itself. You still have to clean up the mold, but it will stop growing. And it's active mold growth in a building that causes the most illness. Excessive fungal matter in any building will, will, is, is a problem, especially for people who have sensitivities and especially respiratory sensitivities. But active mold growth is really what causes the, the, the vast majority of, of really serious human illness. Well, speaking of water damage, um, when I listened to your conversation, you had a great conversation on the Holy Health podcast. Um, it kind of resonated with me because in the fire service, our goal is obviously to put the, the fire out, but the secondary element we have to be mindful of is water damage. And when I'm hearing you talking about this as a firefighter, it really kind of adds a story behind the moment that we can, you know, stop flowing water in a structure and cover, you know, furniture, maybe siphon off some of the water that's kind of running out. Um, you know, it's our responsibility from a, uh, not only uh, you know the initial extinguishment element, but trying to preserve as much of the the uh, the structure itself and not completely flood it, and therefore, if not destroy their home, create health problems for those homeowners down the road. No doubt about it. I mean, water damage from fires is 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 a significant problem, and it's and it would be it would be beneficial if that could be handled more gingerly. Of course, you know you have to do what you have to do to to get a fire under control. Um, but it is it is. It is not uncommon. I've come across this quite a bit where the, the house had a history with a fire and that there was hidden water damage that had not been addressed properly. You know, a lot of people are quick to, this brings up a really interesting point. Insurance companies uh, love to do things inexpensively. <laughs> they're, they're paying for the repairs. They're, they, they handle that a lot differently than, than you would pay, than, than you would if you were paying for your own repairs. Um, and so as a result, oftentimes these the assessments done post water damage, post fire uh, are done by people who basically work for the insurance companies. Um, and so the, the repairs and the remediation are often quick and dirty with very little oversight uh, and almost no testing. And, uh, and that in and of itself is a serious problem. I mean, thank goodness we don't have a lot of fires, you know, per, per you know, on a per, per capita basis, but, uh, in areas where that does happen, similar problems, by the way, happen in areas where there's uh, flooding of any sort, like these, these hundred year floods that seem to happen annually these days, that, that that's often uh, handled in, in, in a, in a uh, substandard way as well. And so, uh, it's really important when someone's buying a house you know, or renting even to, to pay attention to your, to trust your senses. 
like I said, if you see it, smell it or feel it, do something, you know, take action, get some testing done, hire a professional if you can find a qualified independent one. Um, uh, but also just trust your senses and then get the data, um, you know, trust your senses, but get the data. Um, so uh, that that's super important. Anytime that you're going to be at, at the um, at the mercy of an insurance company and it's a health related thing, um, you know, sometimes you have to just step up a, a notch and 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 take some things into your own hands. You know. So when you were talking about that, it kind of made me think of Louisiana, for example. And I have friends that went, you know, to Katrina as rescuers. So you've got a double edged sword there. You got the acute exposure that those men and women. Um, are exposed to while they're trying to make the rescues. And then obviously you've got all the poor homeowners after the water subsides that you know, some of whom may be, as you said, at the mercy of an insurance job where it's subpar and now they've just endured this, this national disaster and now they're, they're suffering the consequences in their own home as well. That's right. And even, by the way, the outdoor air in those places can get pretty nasty. There's something called Katrina cough, which is the, you know, the, the, the word for mold related cough really. Uh, and that, that there was the mold problems down there were so bad outdoors that people were having issues. Um, so, you know, it's incredible. And one of the reasons indoor air quality is a problem because the stuff accumulates indoors, outdoor air is constantly changing and it dilutes itself, you know, so you're getting kind of a fresh breath of, of, of new microbes every, um, every, every breath. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it is for, for, for your audience, um, you know, mold is a, is a, is a constant threat, you know, uh, thank goodness respiratory, your respiratory protection is, is, uh, is available. Um, and I would also recommend that anybody, you know, N95 is not enough in a moldy environment. Um, this is a, a practical tip for you. You should, you should only use, um, P one hundred or any, any of the other, uh, uh, respirators that also remove organic vapors. Um, VOCs, because a big part of exposure to mold. So mold grows and produces spores, uh, which are the microscopic seeds that most people are familiar with, um, and also the musty smell, which we talked about at length. Uh, and that there's a lot of a lot of emerging science about the health impact of of the musty odor, uh, and then the mycotoxins, which is what most people talk about about when it comes to mold related disease, but actually is probably responsible for the vast minority of cases. Um, regardless, in order for you to prevent yourself from being exposed to those things, it's not enough to just have an N95 particle mask. Uh, also, if you have air purifiers, the same thing goes. It's not enough to just get a HEPA filter because that'll just take out the particles. If you've got a mold exposure, you want to make sure that you've got a lot of activated carbon in whatever filter you're using. Um, and so that would that's what will capture the chemicals that make up the musty smell or any of the other airborne chemicals that are common in modern buildings. Uh, I really do believe that we are the reason we have such autoimmune issues and respiratory from 1965 until now, smoking is down 80%, but death related to respiratory illness up 30% in the same period. Really? Um, and if you do, if you look back at what, what's changed, we've caused, we've, we've created tighter buildings. We've also, um, you know, our renovations are, are chemical laden, uh, new floors, new paint, you know, the, all the paints and the furniture coming from China, off gassing, we're in these tight chemical boxes. Um, and if you have enough moisture, you have a chemical box with mold. Um, and so we're rebreathing that stuff. How many times a day? 20,000. There you go. So that that's the kind of thing that you know when you look look at what we've done as a modern society, uh, we've we've really uh, created these, like I said, these chemical boxes that we that we live and work in. And so if you're a first responder or you're in a position to uh, where you have to protect those lungs, and you're going into places that you know uh, is bad, you should be doubling up as much as you can. You should be even consider. 
using that uh, even when you're not concerned with uh, some of the other occupational hazards. You know, I mean, the, 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 a, a proper respiratory equipment um, is, and properly fitted, I should also add, properly fitted respiratory equipment is definitely your best friend when it comes to this. Well, speaking of that, and I want to credit again the Holy Health podcast because she brought this question up and it was a, a great, you know, question. This last two years, respiratory health has obviously been at the forefront of a lot of conversations. Mask effectiveness has also been. So it's interesting you're talking about N95s and, and, and spores, um, versus a, a minute virus, but, uh, that's another conversation. But again, what I've talked about this whole two years is how do we make people more resilient? That's the conversation that was never had. Healthier, you know, fitter, stronger, you know, better sleep, time outdoors, all the, the things that create resilience. And again, now we're talking about the you know, mold exposure reducing, you know, the, the, uh, the strength of the respiratory system in increasing, um, inflammation. So have you got any kind of, um, lens or perspective on, what health would have done, excuse me, what mold would have done people exposed to mold and their reaction to, for example, a COVID virus? Interesting. Um, I can only speak anecdotally uh, on on that. Um, My experience is that what mold does better than anything else is that it makes you weak. Uh, in, in, in so many ways, physically weak, emotionally weak. Um, and, and the key, the the key to, to optimal living, the first step in optimal living is stop doing stuff that makes you weak. (laughs) You know, that's the first thing, stop doing the stuff that makes you weak, whatever that thing is. And in this case, it's breathing, uh, moldy air or musty air. Um, and so, you know, the, my, my experience is that, that people who live in a moldy environment are more susceptible to all kinds of infections. Um, it just opens them up to that. And so, um, and then the opposite is also true. You know, the, I, I actually believe that there's, a you, you know, you being exposed to small amounts of mold is good for you. There's a hormetic response. You can, you know, you know, I've been in and out of so many moldy houses over the years. I almost feel like it's like allergy shots for me, you know, cause I go in and out into a moldy house and then I leave and I go into a, a, my own home, which is measured and tested and, and air here I know is good. Uh, and I rest and I rejuvenate here. Um, and you know, by the way, we've never gotten COVID here. Um, and we took a long time before we decided to do the vaccinations and we, we were not exactly like completely isolated. Um, and, and I really do think that healthy indoor air, uh, is medicine. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting as well, cause we're talking about mushrooms and then the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about the healing element of mushrooms. So <laughs> a little irony there. So I want to get into, you know, the testing and then, and then, you know, the treatment, but before we do the journey from wall street to mold. So tell me about Oreo and that, that kind of path that you took. Oh my. Um, so after I, uh, when I was in Hawaii, uh, after I, well, let me back up. I, 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 after wall street, I threw 20 pounds of stuff in a backpack, sold everything I owned and, and went on a walkabout. Um, and, uh, I was driven in large part by, uh, a, a quiet voice inside my head, which was really my mom's, um, uh, which was, uh, about service. It was really about contribution to the greater good. You know, what, what are you doing with your life in essence? And, um, 
you know, on Wall Street, I did all the things that people on Wall Street do when they're in their 20s and they're making a lot of money. You know, I did all the wrong things and I did them abundantly. And, uh, but I did take time occasionally to volunteer as some, uh, for Operation Smile. I did a couple of international missions with them. Is that the, the Clef Palette organization? Because yeah. I had, yeah. um, a plastic surgeon EJ who would be one of the surgeons that would go over there. Yeah. It's a great organization. Um, Bill and Kathy McGee, the founders, um, and I'm very good friends with, uh, with their son Todd. And I, I, I met them when I was, I met them through donations and volunteering. Um, and it's just a, it's a wonderful group that I don't, I don't even know how many countries they're in now, but it's, it's just, uh, they've, they've really, truly changed the face of the world. If you'll pardon the expression. Um, and, uh, and I, I did a uh, one in Western Sahara and one in, in, um, South America and Brazil. And, uh, I came back from those rejuvenated. I was exhausted by the work, you know, cause I mean, if you're in these terrible countries and the, they're, they're, it's not an easy thing to do, but, um, but I, I came back rejuvenated. Whereas when I took time off, if I took time off when I was a broker, um, I came back and I needed vacation for my vacation, you know, I needed to, to, to detox essentially. So, um, so I knew I needed to do something where I, where I, where I was contributing to the greater good. And so I went backpacking, um, and this was right. I quit in August of, of 2001 and then September 11th happened. And so I went by train from New Jersey to LA through Canada, uh, and then flew to Hawaii. And while I was in Hawaii, I was reading a story about a guy who got sick from the hotel where he was an employee. Um, and it turned out to be the biggest mold problem in modern history. It was a $55 million mold problem. Uh, the building was only $90 million to build new con- new construction. Um, they basically gutted it and, and they had a vapor barrier on the wrong side of the wall assembly. They built it as if it should be in a warm climate, a, a cold climate instead of a warm climate. And so they had all this condensation in the walls. What happened was a maid had found that there was a little bit of mold and they began opening the walls uh, and it was like Pandora's box. It just kept opening it. It went from 5 million to to 500,000 to 5 million to 55 million. And uh, so it was big headlines all over, all over the islands. In fact, in, in the international real estate news, it was, it was big, big headlines. And I was right there sort of ground zero um, of, for this, for, for mold um, right after ground zero for New York, actually just thought about that. But anyway, the bottom line is that uh, this guy who got sick from the mold uh, uh, brought me, it was like a deja vu moment for me because he had uh, developed adult onset asthma and, and allergies and sensitivities to all these things that he'd never had a problem with. And, uh, and I thought, geez, I wonder if we had a mold problem at Old Trenton Road. And I called my father from a payphone, which probably isn't there anymore, uh, and said, hey, dad, do you think we had a mold problem? And he just laughed at me. He goes, Jason, we had mushrooms in the basement. Of course we had mold. Why do you ask? It was just so easy for him to just say that because it was never, no no one ever thought that mold, you know, that generational ignorance is how I think about it. You know, it's not, it's not a judgment against him. It's just that it was that there was just no awareness around the subject. Um, And in that moment, when he said that, I said, do you think we, do you think it was what might've caused some of, or might've been, uh, you know, a part of my problem? And he goes, well, it certainly couldn't have helped. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, not that anyone was going to do that, not that anybody was going to do anything about it, but you know, anyway, uh, again, not for lack of love, for lack of awareness. That's just the way things were done back then. And so, but in that moment, I had a light bulb go on. It was truly one of the, an epiphany um, that that's what I wanted to do. And I wasn't sure what that meant, but I became fascinated, not with mold, but with how buildings impact our health. I couldn't help but think that, that, that you know, that this is a common thing that people were overlooking. And so I went looking on Google and man, there was very little out there about mold and health. Very, very, very little in 2001. But I came back from, from 
uh, from Hawaii. I flew home. I actually shortened my trip because I came back and I was curious. Um, and I, I ended up getting a job working for a mold remediation company. It was the basement waterproofing company, actually. that was just starting to do mold remediation because it really wasn't an industry. There weren't like specialists doing this, um, not in abundance. And uh, I was I was working with those guys and quickly saw that they were even worse than the Wall Street guys. They were just taking advantage of consumers and, and overcharging them and stuff. And I figured there must be a way for me to do this business without without being part of that whole thing and maybe a way that I can protect the consumer. So I was doing... Um, I was uh, looking for different technologies to detect hidden mold because I thought maybe I would start an inspection business. And I heard about a guy who trained dogs to sniff out hidden mold in buildings. And uh, it was actually my then girlfriend's uh, mom who told me, very tongue in cheek, she thought, she thought it was ridiculous. She goes, you know, they've got dogs trained to do what you do for a living. And I was like, is that an insult? I think that's <laughs> an insult. But I wanted to know more about it because it was, it was a fascinating concept. So I, I went down to Florida, actually, a safety harbor, met a guy named Bill Whitstein who trains dogs to find everything you can possibly imagine, anything and everything. Um, and he had trained uh, one of the first mold detection dogs. And he introduced me to a lanky black lab named Oreo, uh, who was about a year old at the time. And she had been on doggy death row twice. Uh, she was, she was a, a dog that Bill likes to say needed a job to stay out of trouble. That's what he was always looking for. Um, and so he he uh, introduced me to her and uh, she had already gone through training. She'd gotten a thousand hours of, of mold training. Uh, the rest of the training was really to train me uh, on how to how to how to interpret her her signals. Um, and so I came back from Florida with this fourteen thousand dollar dog. I had no plans to do that going down. Let me tell you. But I came back with this dog and the basement waterproofing guy, who, the guy who owned the company, thought that he was going to take advantage of this opportunity to, to get some press for his firm, called Channel 6 Action News. They sent the consumer alert division, uh, consumer alert reporter to try to debunk me. She hit a bunch of mold in the house. And instead of uh, debunking us, we found it in minutes and she endorsed us. And I hadn't even set up a, a, an inspection company or anything. Um, so uh, with with I formed an LLC, called it Lab Results because we did Labrador, we used Labrador retrievers to and laboratory testing. And, um, and, uh, my phone started ringing off the hook and a couple of the cases were referred by some local doctors who had some patients who weren't responding to normal, normal care. Um, some of them were uh, pretty dramatic and we went in found the mold and got it, got it corrected. They got better. Um, and the doctors were like, wow, this is incredible. And so we started getting more referrals from doctors and more word of mouth and it, it just kept going. And, uh, th those, some of those stories, uh, landed us on good morning America. Um, and then we got invited to do uh, extreme makeover home edition a couple of times and a whole bunch. I mean, it's been like a groundswell that company became 1-800-GOT-MOLD. Um, and, um, and we went on it to do thousands and thousands of inspections, Oreo and I, um, and it was profoundly, uh, healing act. People often will call up and say, I'd like your dog to come over. You can leave the humans, but we'd like your dog. To come <laughs> um, she was magical. She we had to put her, she, 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 she passed away after 12 years of service. Uh, about six years ago, uh, and she's sorely missed. But what she did was she 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 helped us raise awareness about the subject. Everyone, you know, the reporters love this um, because we got to use a rescue dog to hit, fix sick homes, and uh, that's an evergreen story, you know. And so, um, you know, the 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 impact that we made together, uh, with, you know, with the homes that we were in was one thing, but also um, it was just one of those you know sort of heartwarming stories and. And um, yeah, I look back at those years uh, with real fondness. Beautiful. Well, firstly, Safety Harbor is a beautiful place. My wife does her uh, optician re 
um, CEs there. So I get to kind of hang out there for a couple of days and gorgeous down there. Yeah, I love the spa. They've got uh, a nice little setup there. Yeah. The Safety Harbor Resort and Spa. Absolutely. That's where, that's where it yeah. is. Yep. And then you got yeah, the little got dock like, next to it with the manatees. Yeah. You got to make the water that they have there is, uh, it was supposedly uh, a Ponce de Leon thought he discovered the fountain of youth. Uh, because of the the springs that they have there, the water that comes out of the mineral water there is really remarkable. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I'm trying. yeah. All, all I know is there's a British cafe that does the best English breakfast that you'll find in Florida. So sometimes I make oh. the drive just for that. <laughs> now that I know that, I I I I, I crave a good English bre- English breakfast sometimes. Thanks for the tip. No worries. So so you found yourself in in the testing you know area then. So um. Talk to me about what the traditional testing looks like now. I know you have the kind of the, the home kit um, that you do as well. So for people listening, you know, what, what are the, the, um, the spectrum of opportunities for them, for their home and or if it's someone listening from a council or, you know, or, or city that's looking for their professional business? So if you want to have your house tested for mold right now, um, you have to hire a professional. Um, and in most to get a, to get scientifically valid results, you almost invariably have to hire a professional. Um, and that professional will come over with a bag of tools and, and perform a physical inspection of the property. And then based upon what they find or don't find, then collect air samples. Um, not everyone does it, but, but everyone should. Um, and, uh, and those air samples are then sent to a laboratory where they're, they're analyzed for uh, the the, uh, the particulates that are, that are found. There are other kinds of tests that also test for the gases, and we, we, we highly recommend um, those as well. But in most cases, a, pro- a professional inspection is what's necessary to get a high-quality test. Um, and so that was the sort of the basis for 1-800-GOT-MOLD was that we, we came in as a, as a non-remediator to just do an inspection and testing without any strings attached. So we're, we're not doing remediation. So that's a very important part of getting your house tested is that whoever you do hire, if you hire a professional, is that they don't also do remediation and that their brother's not in the remediation business or their cousin. Um, and it's very important that they're unbiased because ins- inspection data is a, it can, it can be used as a tool for, for abuse. Um, and so it's very important that you find someone who's really, uh, who's really uh, got a great reputation um, and that is uh, completely independent. So that's one side of the spectrum in terms of testing the professional. And that'll, like I said, be a thousand or, or more in most cases, uh, including lab testing. On the other side of the spectrum, all the way down at the, you know, at $10. So you can find these Petri dishes at the checkout aisle in the, in the hardware store. Those are called settling plates. They don't work. In fact, that's not true. They work all the time. They don't always grow mold. They don't tell you anything because mold grows. Mold spores are abundant. Uh, the, 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 we're literally awash in them. Um, there's a, um, a fabulous book called The Entangled Life, which talks all about uh, the kingdom fungi um, written by Merlin Sheldrake. And I highly recommend anyone who's interested in this to read it. It's very interesting, very entertaining. And he, he uh, says that... Um, Every year, the kingdom fungi produces 50 megatons of spores, which is the equivalent of 500,000 blue whales. So we are literally awash in fung- fungal spores. They're, you're not going to get away from that. Um, and so, uh, so the, uh, the, the, the idea that you'd have a, put a Petri dish on the, on the table and it would grow something uh, is, is not 
you know, a stretch. <laughs> Spores are everywhere, but the conditions that are to make to to, to allow them to grow are not. And in a petri dish, that's exactly what you need. So you get ten dollars on one side, a thousand dollars or more on the other. That's the spectrum, if you will, of mold testing. In the middle, there's a lot of junk science. There's a lot of stuff that looks like it might be. You know, it's, it's mass. There's a lab that produces it, and it might be you know you collect some tape lift or a swab or. 99% of it is junk science, uh, pseudoscience, junk science. Um, and so it was with the frustration that we kept, people called us, 1-800-GOT-MOLD. I mean, we were on all this national, all these national programs for all these years. People called us from all over the country, in fact, from all over the world, asking if we had inspectors in their area. And then if we didn't, in most cases we didn't, uh, they asked if there was a, a test kit that we could recommend. And we looked high and low and couldn't find one and uh, eventually just decided to make it. Um, and so we put a dream team of engineers and scientists together to create uh, uh, the first scientifically valid consumer friendly uh, air test kit for mold. Um, and uh, you can find you can go to gotmold.com to take a peek at that. But the uh, but basically what we did is we took the professional air sampling pump that the guy would come in if he was going to do an inspection in your house. Uh, we took that pump and shrunk it down and simplified it into a device that looks like this. OK. Uh, and. Then that interfaces with air sampling cassettes, the same air sampling cassettes that you that you use as a professional that are designed to care, capture the airborne particulate matter. Um, and then we we are, um, secured an arrangement with the number one lab in the country, MLAB PNK, um, and so uh, they do all the analysis. So someone would buy our kit, uh, and then it would allow them to collect air samples in areas that they're concerned with. Comes with a prepaid mailer. All the lab fees are included in the purchase of the kit. Uh, and then once at the lab, it takes two days to, to get the results back. And the results come with a really simple interpretation, green, yellow, orange, or red result, uh, as well as the lab results themselves. So a professional could look at them and say, and, and make their own determination and a, a list of, of recommendations on what to do next, depending upon the severity of what was found. Um, and the, the reason the, the other p big piece of creating this was that, um, that I, I realized that my parents could not have afforded, my own parents could not have afforded to hire a mold, inspe a, a mold inspector through 1-800-GOT-MOLD. It was out of reach. Um, and so my, the big driving force for this whole thing was to help build tools and services for people to avoid having to go through my folks went through. But, but I realized that healthy indoor air uh, should not be cost prohibitive. Right, um, and that the idea that you sh you should be able to get this information uh, regardless of what your budget is is what caused us to 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 uh, to create this kit. And now, you know, with the Gottmold test kit, you can the one room is one forty nine, two rooms one ninety nine, and three rooms is two forty nine. And then once you, you use the kit, you can keep the pump, and you can reorder supplies, which is nice. So that each so the reorder supply it's fifty dollars less. So one room is only ninety nine dollars, and then one forty nine for two, and one ninety nine for three. And the good news is that my folks could afford that. My, my mom would have would have bought one of these, you know, I, I, I knowing her uh, the, the way she would she would have been very interested in this. And so um, that's what this is about. This is about giving people the ability to do this without the cost or hassle or aggravation or getting permission from someone to just test and see what's going on, whether it's an even if it's in, in a workplace. We have teachers using them. I'm sure people will be using them in firehouses and in, and in barracks and things like that, because the results are the results. And if there's an issue, you now have justification for you to take action, whatever that means. Uh, if that means you have to change things on your own, if you may, you may want to put an air purifier in there, reduce exposure, look for the moisture source, right? Stop that. Yeah, the bottom line is that we, we look at this as a tool for awareness so that people can, can, can take informed actions. And so that it's not a he said, he said, she said kind of thing.
Yeah, I think I've I've heard people talking about buying kits in fire stations, but when you were talking about a lot of the junk science side, then that kind of invalidates the money they just spent. So to have this, say they are up against a very kind of stubborn organization and to be able to bring, you know, what you've just said, you know, whether it's from a union budget, whether it's the guys at the station, guys and girls just all chipping in so they can say, look, I mean, these are, you know, we're, this is the scale and it's a red where we're, where we're staying. Um, you know, that, that would be an incredible tool. And obviously, you know, hopefully the actual employer would be doing the testing themselves or bringing one of you guys in. Um, because when you hear about all the potential, you know, health effects and then something I talk about a lot is my profession is already underslept, inflamed, you know, all the things that you're talking about. And then you're adding that other layer, you know, you are going to have acute response to, to a fire station or a barracks that's filled with mold. No doubt about it. I mean, and, and also you're already emotionally taxed. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's really it, it, the healthy indoor air, especially for first responders is just not optional. Absolutely. Now, with the mitigation, I mean, I don't want to, you know, to pull every single kind of um, action that you guys have in your tool belt, but say you are a kind of, you know, e- either a, a yellow or maybe towards the red, you know, what are the things that a, a homeowner or a firefighter in a station can do themselves? And then when does it cross the line to you actually do need to start bringing people in? Well, so the, the rule of thumb for mold remediation is, according to the EPA, is a three foot by three foot section. They say 10 square feet, but um, it, that to me is enormous. Um, I, I think that that's, a, that that's way past what a homeowner should be doing uh, on their own. Um, in fact, I don't even do my own mold remediation. And it's not because I've got this huge budget, I mean, or because I've got all these services. It's because I'm humbled by um, uh, uh, how... how, how uh, how, how heavy the impact can be if you, if you handle those things irresponsibly. Um, and so, you know, we have a book, an ebook we produce called uh, how to find mold in your home. And we post that actually on a, uh, on a page, a, a welcome page for your listeners uh, at gotmold.com slash behind the shield. Um, and there's an ebook there. It's about 45 pages. It's filled with inspection checklists and FAQs. We get a lot of really positive feedback on this. Um, and it's great for people who aren't ready to, you know, buy a test kit or schedule an inspection or, or even pick up the phone and talk to someone. Um, because it, w- what we do in that book is kind of give you the ability to do your own inspection, look for things, raise your awareness about the things that are going on in your building. Um, I feel like we need to start really realizing that your building is an extension of your immune system. It's an exoskin, an exoskeleton. Um, and and you're, it doesn't have an immune system you're its immune system. And, and the first that you, you get signals from your building when something's wrong, the same way you get signals from your body when something's wrong, you get pain from inflammation. What you would get with, with the building is you get a musty odor. That's a sign that there's an ache or a pain in the building and that moisture, a moisture problem has been created. And your job is to pay attention to that. And, 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 um, and so that's why I feel like raising awareness about this is so important because you can get to it when it's small. See, water damage is free or cheap to fix. Mold is expensive. And so if you can get to it when it's still just water damage, then you can handle that on your own. I mean, you really don't want to go past three days. So that's very important. If you've got a water problem past three days, if you've got sheetrock and it's moldy, you, you may want to take a step back. Three square feet 
three feet by three feet, rather not that's three foot squared, um, but three foot by three foot is a lot of mold. Um, and so uh, m- my suggestion is uh, that uh, if you doubt that you should be doing it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, the problem is, is that it is very expensive. So it's very important that you become an informed consumer or an informed, uh, an informed occupant. Um, and a lot of that stuff is covered in the, in, in the, uh, how to find mold book. Um, the most important thing you can do is reduce exposure. And so in the, you know, when you've got a mold problem or an indoor air quality problem, there are three things you can do. Number one, you can fix the source. That's obviously ideal, but not always possible. The second thing you can do is you can dilute, which means bring fresh air from outside. In some cases, you can do that mechanically if you've got some an issue with like chemicals in the building, and that's a longer conversation. Uh, if anyone's interested in those things, you can always go to gotmold.com, scroll all the way down. It says, got questions. You can drop a question in there, or you can even drop a question on our Facebook page. And I like to answer those uh, for the public. But in any case, the, the first thing is source control. Second thing is dilution, bring fresh air in. You can't really always do that. That's sometimes you're bringing in humid air from outside or from another, another building. So that's not, not always a very practical thing you can do. The third thing, and it's the most practical thing, um, is air filters, air purifiers. Um, you need to filter the air. I'm not talking, you know, the, there's a lot of junk out there that with these zappers and, you know, whether it's a molecule or, or ionic breeze, which is the ionic breeze of today. Um, these things are not what you need. You need good old fashioned HEPA filters with a, with carbon in it to reduce the chemical, uh, the, 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 the airborne chemi- chemicals. Um, but you need to reduce exposure. Um, so that may mean you might want to relocate. That may mean that you, you, uh, uh, put in air filters. Um, but those are the things that you can do. There's not a lot of other choices when it comes to dealing with a mold problem. Um, and, and then, you know, the big question is if you're going to hire a professional, how are you going to find them? Um, and again, if you go to the, how to go to the, how to find mold book in the back, we talk about some of the trade associations that train and certify, uh, inspectors in our industry. Now, at what point, um, would a building become condemned? Cause I know that's one of the things that there are, I've stayed in fire stations that probably should have been knocked down, you know, decades prior. So at what point does, I mean, is it really just a kind of, uh, cost versus benefit when, when the, you know, remediation outweighs the value of the building? Yeah. Cause I, it's very rare that I find a building that can't be remediated. Um, you know, only when it's become structurally hampered and that's beyond mold, so to speak, that's, you know, that's really rot. Um, and, and again, like you said, cost benefit, um, you know, there, it basically, if it's, there's tremendous sentimental value, you know, or historical value, or, or monetary value, those, those considerations weigh heavily on whether or not a building is to be sort of zeroed. Um, and by the way, out of all the assessments I've done, and, I, and like I said earlier, in the thousands, I stopped counting a while back, um, the, uh, I've only had to tell two people that this building was uh, uninhabitable and beyond repair. Um, and most cases, and I'm saying even with those considerations, even with, you know, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the considerations of, um, you know, complete, re- complete the cost, the cost benefit analysis. Um, so in most cases, it's a lot scarier than the reality, but I will say this mold remediation takes a long time. Um, and so to do it right, you shouldn't be in the building <laughs> and a properly executed mold, mold issue or mold remediation project takes about a month. Um, between the inspections and finding contractors and scheduling and doing the work. And then there's time in between where you're running air purifiers and then you're going to do the inspection and testing at the end. And then there's time for that. 
the whole thing takes a long time, even with professionals. So it's, it's extremely, um, uh, disturb, it disturbs your life while it's something you'll never, um, I think I feel a little bit of a, my internet connection just kind of wobbled. Um, it's, it, it's, it's very disruptive to your, to your life. Uh, and it's not an easy thing to, to get through, which is part of the reason why I think why so many people who, who do good work in this space had an experience of their own, right? The reason that my colleagues for other companies, the, the ones who are doing the best work have been through it because they realize how hard it is to do it well. Even if you've got everything lined up and even if you've got experience, it's hard to do it well. And it's really easy to screw it up. Now, just again, pulling from one of the other conversations I had, um, I heard you talking about some of the myths as far as, you know, using bleach and that kind of thing. So talk to me about what removal actually looks like. You know, some of the things that we think work for mold versus what actually works. And that's a great question. Thank you. So uh, up there in the top of the myths that we try to debunk is that there is no need to kill mold. Um, you know, it's not like you have to sneak up behind and snuff it out so that you can, you know, wrestle it and, you know, or, or so you can get out of the building. It doesn't need that extra step. Um, mold remediation, the root of remediation is remedy. And so that means re- the remedy here is to, is to remedy the moisture problem first, then clean up the rest of the mold, not kill the mold. Um, so what that looks like is you fix the water problem, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a humidity issue or liquid water, doesn't matter. You fix whatever's causing that moisture to, to, to accumulate or develop. And then you remove the building materials that cannot be cleaned. So that means things that are porous and absorptive, like carpet, carpet, padding, sheetrock, insulation, um, uh, ceiling tiles, uh, upholstered furniture that's gotten wet and stayed wet for any length of time. These kinds of things are, you know, when in doubt, throw it out. You just, you, those things get removed. And then the rest of the, all of the exposed surfaces are then very methodically cleaned using HEPA filter vacuum cleaners and damp wipes. Um, contractors love to use chemicals, um, but they, they are leaving behind a chemical residue. And they're also oftentimes using chemicals in lieu of cleaning. And that is a big no-no. This is just cleaning. It's really, truly, it's demo, controlled interior demolition, controlled in the sense that they do it in a bubble so that the dust they make in that space stays in that space. And then it's surface cleaning and air scrubbing the whole time. That's all it really is. It's just a lot of work. And guess what? Contractors want the paycheck. They just don't want to do the work. Um, so they'd rather spray a chemical or a fog or a, or, or, a, or or some other zapper or buzzer or whatever kind of gadget they can do to, to, to so they don't have to have people in there doing the work. Um, bleach is a particularly common myth, and it's a ver- it's a really important one to debunk because people uh, for, it's generational ignorance. This is a perfect example of your grandmother's um, you know wis- wisdom bubbling forth. But bleach is ninety seven percent water and three percent sodium hypochlorite. That's what that smell is, right? So, and it's a volatile organic compound in the sense that it evaporates quickly. So, when you spray bleach on mold, the sodium hypochlorite will evaporate quickly. Yes, it will bleach what's there. So if you've got black mold, it's no longer black. If you've got dirt, you know, it will bleach those things, but it still leaves those things behind. And even and, and even if it does kill it, it leaves behind dead mold. And dead mold is still just as allergenic and toxigenic as live mold. Um, but it's also giving you this false idea that you've done something to, to, uh, to uh, clean this up. But what you've really done is you've just put 
uh, 97% of that of, of water onto a, 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 onto a mold. So you've just added water to a water problem. The sodium hypochlorite evaporates, leaving behind all this dampness. You got dead mold there. And then all the live spores that are in the air will then land there and then they'll eat the dead mold. So not only have you not fixed the problem, you've actually amplified the problem. And there's research out there showing that uh, that the mycotoxin production um, actually increases when you, when you use biocides, that the mold doesn't like that. Um, and so what it does is it amplifies and it fires off. It's sort of like last round of ammo at you um, because, you know, it feels threatened. And so uh, you, there's very many unintended consequences to using bleach for remediation. And again, that also people use this in lieu of cleaning. So it really is truly a double whammy on the downside. Um, you know, cleaning up mold, if you're ever going to do it yourself, wear proper protection you know, cordon off the area, run air purifiers in there, um, you know, follow the professional guidance to the best of your ability, but when in doubt, hire someone if you can. It's, it's really one of those things where, you know, you wouldn't, there, there are lots of, lots of things these days that you wouldn't want to do yourself. And this is one of them. Well, one thing that was uh, glaring as well, as you mentioned that mold produces benzene and benzene is something that we have to fight in the fire station because we've got these giant vehicles going into these bays. A lot of times the ice machine is right by the exhaust pipe of the bay, you know, so we're, we're getting all these carcinogens and again, you know, sleep deprived and carcinogen exposure. We had a lot of cancer in the fire service. Um, so from an air quality point of view, I heard you talking about some of your favorite companies when it comes to air filters, because the one thing that firefighters love to bring into stations is their own gadgets to try and improve that, that 24 hour experience. For sure. Yeah, no, I, so there are two companies that I really love. I, I, products I really love. I, I'm a huge fan of IQ Air of the product. I hate to, hate to say it, not so much the company these days, um, but I'm a huge fan of, of the product. Uh, they sell a, pro, a, a particular unit called the Health Pro Plus that's got uh, a huge amount of charcoal in it, huge amount of carbon in it. Um, and also they've got, uh, instead of HEPA, they use ULPA. Um, they call it Hyper HEPA, but it's a, it's a finer. Um, a finer filter, finer pour on the filter, and it captures um, atmospheric dust and viruses. And it's a really powerful, it's the gold standard of air filters, but you pay for that. I mean, the, the, you know, you're going to spend a thousand bucks on one of those. The The other company that I absolutely love um, is called Medify, M-E-D-I-F-Y. And um, I love that company because their units are really effective, they're attractive, and they're really, really affordable. You can get for for a, for a unit that will cover 200 square feet, you can do it for under hundred bucks, which is just amazing. You can take that with you wherever you want. You know, you can bring it with you at night, but the, the thing about air purifiers for them to be really effective. First of all, you want true HEPA, which is, I mentioned this earlier, but HEPA is not enough. True HEPA means it's a sealed cylinder. So in other words, or sealed, there's gaskets that prevent air from going around the filter. Um, and so that's very important. You might say, what, what is not, what is, what's the opposite of true HEPA? Well, it's, it's not HEPA, right? Most it's a HEPA filter that air should go through. <laughs> and you see this with HEPA filtered vacuum cleaners often, which by the way, is another investment. If you really want to improve the quality of your air, get yourself a good HEPA filtered vacuum cleaner, because if you don't, all that stuff that's sitting in that bag is going right out the back and smaller and more respirable pieces. Um, and, and if you really want to destroy your air quality, just vacuum with a regular vacuum cleaner because you're just spewing it right out the back. Uh, all the allergens concentrated, it's, it's nasty stuff. But the, the air, air purifiers um, by Medify um, and also IQ Air, they make the small ones. Uh, IQ Air has some that they're actually appropriate for a vehicle. Um, they call them atoms. Um, and so 
there's really there's the, the, the technologies are getting better and better, but there is really no substitute for a good old fashioned filter, but air being forced through. So, you know, don't buy the hype. If you, if you're looking at uh, air filters and you see these things that are silent or that they say they eliminate, uh, that they kill everything. Um, those are not recommended. Uh, you, there, there is un- unfortunately uh, it is, it is taking a fan and a filter and forcing the air through is what cleans it. Um, and, and there's really no shortcuts on that. Beautiful. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can be mindful of your time. You mentioned uh, The Entangled Life. Are there any books, any other books, excuse me, that you love to recommend? And it can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated. Man, I tell you, I, I love to read. And I, I have back here in that corner is my success library. Um, and so... You know, I have to say there there are a couple of couple that sort of uh, that I give out on a regular basis. Uh, one is the Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Um, if you're if you if if you're curious about meditation, but you don't want to be you don't want to hear the word, and you don't want to hear you know because a lot of people don't want to be they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to. It's a really annoying subject. That's the book. Um, and, and he's just an amazing writer, uh, and he also a great audiobook. Uh, my other, uh, in a similar vein is uh, awareness by Anthony DeMello. Uh, he's a Jesuit priest who, uh, and who, who doesn't speak like a Jesuit priest. Uh, and it's all about, uh, questioning the things that you don't question, <laughs> um, and bringing awareness to things that you're not aware of and, and, you know, our human interactions and some of the lies we tell ourselves. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of those two books on the subject of, uh, indoor air quality. Uh, I'm a, I, I, I recommend uh, never home alone by Rob Dunn. Um, it's a fabulous book. It actually talks a lot about PCR, which is the technology that, that we, we all learned a lot about through COVID testing. Uh, he talks about how that came about, but this is way before COVID. Uh, so he, it was, it was, he was prescient to say the least, but it talks about all the critters that are in our house and the need to use less biocides, really the, to use less chemicals that we need really more diversity in our lives in terms of the microbes. Um, and he talks about how, how that all, all, all that plays in. And, and it's a really beautiful, hilarious book. The Entangled Life is also up there. So, yeah, I mean, I could give you, but in, on this, on the, on the sort of, uh, on the side of, uh, uh, there's a kind of like spiritual health and wellness. And then on the other side is sort of the, you know, the, uh, the microbial stuff. So, which for me kind of is a Venn diagram. I think, I feel like that there's a nice little overlap with most of that stuff. If you look at it long enough, I feel like you should write one microbes and mindfulness. <laughs> I'm writing that down. <laughs> All right. Well, the same question, but uh, um, slightly different vein. What about a documentary and or movie that you love? Fantastic Fungi. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love Paul Stamets um, and everything he's been working on for, for all these years. Um, very, um, very inspiring. And, uh, and I think, you know, the time has come for people to, to embrace these kinds of, you know, the reality of it, but the mushrooms and fungi have gotten a bad rap over the years, you know, but, but Paul Stamets makes a very strong argument that, uh, that the king of fungi are actually the world's immune system, the the earth's immune system, and also, uh, the, uh, earth's telecommunications network. Um, and, uh, and so for that reason, I don't even think about mold being a bad guy. I feel like mold is actually 
a benevolent force, even in our homes. It's, 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 it gives us the signals when something's wrong. Um, and if you don't listen eventually, then it will, then you, they will, it will force you out of the house. But, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of fantastic fungi. Brilliant. You know, I've had that recommended before and I haven't watched it yet. So I'm going to put that top of my list. So thank you. All right. The next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes. Um, yes, I would like, uh, do you want me to give you a name right now? Yeah, please. If you have it. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Sullivan comes to mind and, and it, he's a, uh, um, I, I actually am, uh, I'll be on April 13th. I will be four years alcohol free. Um, one of the parts of the story that I didn't weave in here is that, uh, when I went to wall street, I started drinking, uh, that's what you do in Rome, you know, when in Rome do as the Romans do. And, um, and I knew at the time it was a problem because I quit drinking when I was 13 and I, then I started and I knew it was going to be a problem and it became a problem and, it, and I persisted into a problem and it, such that I couldn't even stop when I wanted to stop. And, um, and it nearly killed me. And, uh, I finally was able to, to put an end to that four years ago. Um, Kevin is a dear friend of mine, but he's also helps a lot of people with, with addiction and recovery. He's been a friend of mine for 25 years. It just so happens our paths recrossed right around that time. And he has, he works a lot with first responders and military, uh, military and people with PTSD and that are, that are self-medicating for these kinds of things. And he has a very beautiful um, way of, of articulating these ideas uh, in a way that, that um, that's useful for, for, for everybody, because I think we all have some sort of repetitive, repetitive behavior or repetitive thought that gives us a little bit of satisfaction, but also causes us problems. Everybody has that thing. Everybody has it. Um, and so it just so happens to be more, more acute with, I think people that are in high stress jobs. Um, and he does a beautiful job of, of helping people navigate those waters. So I would highly recommend him. I, I would have, I'll have some other names for you too, by the way, I'm sure after I, after we finish up here, um, for sure. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah, he sounds like the perfect person. Um, all right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know how to find the, the company and if they want to reach out to you, what do you do to decompress? I meditate and I take walks. Um, I, meditation uh, is core for me. Uh, it's uh, what enables me to have space. Um, there's a, a quote on my desk in between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies your power of freedom and choice. Um, and it was attributed to Viktor Frankl, but probably, or Stephen Covey, but it's probably more like Viktor Frankl. But anyway, the bottom line is that that space between stimulus and response, I never knew that there was a space there. Uh, as a stockbroker, that's all you, 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 the idea is to not have a space, <laughs> you know, get it and respond, you know, that you're, you don't respond, you react. Um, and the, the, the ability to see the, the stimulus and have a little bit of space so that you're, that's what meditation has done for me. It's given me the ability to see that not everything, not every ball that gets thrown at me has to be cat caught or even responded to. Um, not every idea that, uh, that comes up is actually valid. You know, these things all are just this flow of experience. And so med meditation has given me, uh, the, the power to see, to, to, to see that space and to allow that space to be. And, um, and it's been transformative 
to not just me, but everyone around me. Um, and then the simple act of taking a walk, you know, so many exercises we do are unnatural, truly unnatural. We, in nature, we don't do any of the things that people do in a gym. Uh, very, very rarely. Right. Um, but walking is clearly something we've been designed to do. Um, and, and I find that it gives me just tremendous, it gives me that space. It gives, it's a, you know, you can make it into a moving meditation if you want, you can kind of, and it's also alone time where I don't have my phone or some, some media coming into my, into my consciousness. Um, so those two things alone, uh, are, are sort of central to my whole, um, wellness protocol, if you will. Beautiful. Now you touched on, you know, the alcohol journey. It's funny when you said that you quit at the age of 13, because I have a similar story. I quit at the age of 16 and I wasn't binge drinking, but you know, growing up as a European, it's very, it's at dinner, you know, on Sundays and that kind of thing. And then I had a very horrific ski holiday that ended in <laughs> accidental, um, drunkenness. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that's a hell of a long way. You've got the, the trauma that you endured as a child with the, you know, the, being bundled up as a ladybird all the way through to losing your mother. Um, what was the lowest point that you had? And then what were the tools that worked for you after all those years to pull you out of that dark place? Oh boy. I had a lot of dark moments. I was a very persistent alcoholic. Let me tell you. Um, I, I really, I, I was going to, I was just persistent. I, I thought one day I would just be able to just hang it up. Um, but I just kept having all of the things, accumulating all of the things that 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 are clear clear evidence that you have a problem. Um, but uh, the, the the thing that finally got me to at the end, um, well, first of all, when I was thirteen, my I brought my friend to a party, um, and he almost died with booze that I supplied, and that was that for me that was that was just unacceptable. And then I saw my parents, and I saw my grandparents, and that was just like for me, I thought I'll I'll I'll, I'll nip this one in the bud. You know, <clears throat> fast forward, Wall Street, I'm young. I, I was intimidated by, you know, all these guys and their bonding was let's go to the bar, you know, and I wore a suit. So they, I went into the bars with these guys and they, they, you know, it's just, I, I fit right in. No one ever carded me. Um, and I, I started drinking, um, you know, about two years into Wall Street, really. Um, but I was pretty insecure about it, but, uh, but anyway, it was, it was, it was, uh, when I was Sarah, my better half, mother of my two children, she and I had gone out to a long weekend up to up, upstate New York and, um, and a, a series of, of accidents happened and we lost the keys to our, our Airbnb and, um, and slept in the car. It was very embarrassing. Um, and it was cold and she and I got into an argument and got into some, uh, and, and I, and I pushed her not to hurt, not just to add, I pushed her back actually. And we were in, and she fell and she hurt her thumb. Um, and it was, it's, it's not even like that big of a deal, but I'd never hurt her. Um, and, and then we, we, we then, we then, um, proceeded to get you go go back out have have brunch good once we woke up and, and had our wits about us and we went out and had brunch uh, and then um proceeded to to act irresponsibly again and, and long story short I ended up um getting home um and i i realized that i had had probably um damaged our relationship beyond repair and um 
and you know, I don't talk about this much, but I'll, but I'll share it with you. I, I ended up and I'm not, and I'm not even, a, I don't, I'm not even depressed. But I ended up with a belt around my neck and I ended up in the, uh, with the, the, uh, first responders coming and taking me out. I ended up in, uh, um, Bellevue, um, wearing these, 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 uh, famous green socks, these, you know, with the, the treads on them. And, um, and they, you know, they, they let me go back out, you know, first thing in, in the morning. Um, cause I was not a threat to myself or any, anyone else. And I don't even understand how that all descended quite frankly. It was just, but it was drunk. It was drunk. It was drunk. And it was, it was, it was the, it was, it was sad. It was pitiful. And it was also, um, the end of my rope. Literally I had, uh, I, I was exhausted. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, um, and I, at that point I surrendered and I threw myself into 12 step program. Um, and, um, and I just, I completely surrendered to the whole thing. I realized that, you know, I, I, I had gotten to the point where I was a, a hazard and a liability to everyone, and not, not just me, but everyone around me. And, um, and I, and I also, quite frankly, I, you know, it's when they, when people say <laughs> that, that experience brought me to my knees, I never understood what that meant. But, and I started saying it and I realized, ah, it's because they had to learn how to pray. Hmm. And that's what it did for me. It got, it got me in touch with um, a level of spirituality that I couldn't have. I thought I, I had been in touch with, you know, especially around my mom's death and, and all the years in between. But, um, but the booze and the, and, the, and the humility that came out of not being able to stop. You know, the other thing that happened was that my, my withdrawal symptoms were, were so bad that I, um, I was, um, yeah, I, I was it was drinking all the way through the, you know, all the way around the clock because my hangover would turn into shakes and sweats within an hour. It was, it happened faster and faster and faster. And every time I, I quit and I get, had some time, I would, I would have another drink and I'd be right back to where I was. It was, it was unbelievable. I mean, the, there would be no tolerance and it would be, it would be a huge tolerance again, but I would have these withdrawal symptoms that were just about, and I knew I was going to die. I just knew if I kept doing that, I was going to die. Uh, and that I was going to continue to hurt people around me. And, and that it's amazing what it took. It's really amazing to me how stubborn that 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 addiction was and is, and 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 how how many of my friends are still wrestling with that. But I think it was really what what it came down to was that I um, ultimately I had put Sarah in harm's way, and 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 that that I could deal with my own stuff, but as soon the the moment I hurt her, um, that 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 had it destroyed myself. It it just I don't want to say self esteem. Um, but it made me I feel so much less than it, 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 it right-sized me really, truly. Um, and it made me willing to, to put out my hand and really ask for help. Well, again, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I've done 600 episodes now, and there are some very glaring common denominators that have come out of all these people. I mean, truly all walks of life. We were talking about mold mitigation. You got Navy SEALs, you got, you know, all, all people from all over the world. Um, and that's one of the most powerful things that happen. You know, I just had someone the other day tell me that, that it was when their, their, I think it was children, plural, said, you know, daddy, why, you know, you, you scare us, I think, or, you know, the, the, the mother had said that the children are scared of you. And that was a, this person had been through a lot of stuff in their life and said that was the, the worst shot they'd ever taken. It was a firefighter. Um, and then the, the, uh, the help that the 12 steps have created, whether it's the narcotic side, whether it's alcohol side, so many people on this show 
have found that so incredibly helpful, you know, and it was kind of, you know, a couple of decades ago, you thought that was just what rich film stars did, you know, went to to the 12-step program. But it's so powerful to hear that firstly, you know, it's never too late to have that epiphany. Secondly, you know, that these steps seem to work so well. And thirdly, the healing element, especially as you get to the service side of it, um, you know, that that creates longevity in that sobriety. So, so thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, the 12 steps are, I, I often say, take alcohol out and put in anything else and it will help you live a better life. It's about living responsibly. It's about owning your side, owning your side of the street. It's about, you know, a co- it's basically a, a, a code of, of how to live. Um, and, it, and it just so happens that we forget how to, to live when we're self-medicating. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying so, so we're so busy trying to quiet things down and to, and to navigate in a very impractical and, and dysfunctional way. But I, I find that, um, you know, forgiveness is, is, is just universally powerful. And most of what the 12 steps did for me was taught me how to forgive myself for the things that I'd done. And in turn, it's made me a kinder person to me, which has in turn made me a kinder person to others because you will only treat others the way you treat yourself. And the internal dialogue most of us have is, is appalling. Um, and, you know, I haven't motherfucked myself in years now because, you know, that's just, I no longer speak to myself that way. And as a result, I don't speak to other people that way too. It's kind of interesting, right? Um, but the real benefit that came from, from getting sober was that uh, about a month afterwards, Sarah got pregnant. And I now have two little boys, one's three and one's nine months old that um, have never seen me drink and will not see me drink. Um, and so I broke a cycle, which is, uh, which is extremely important to me. And, um, and so I, I look back at my mom's suicide, Lyme disease, my own, my parents' alcoholism, my alcoholism, um, even hurting Sarah with my own hands. Uh, which, you know, still, still brings tears to my eyes. Uh, I still look back at those things. I look back at those things more and more with a deep sense of appreciation. These are the gifts. No adversity should be wasted. That's what I feel like if there's a book to be written, maybe it's microbes and mindfulness, but there's also this, this no adversity should be wasted. Um, they're, 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 they're to be used as stepping stones or as tools to, to help others. At least that's my take. Beautiful. Well, I mean, I agree 100%. And the what I love about this, when, when we were first connected, I was like, well, what a great topic, mold, fire stations, health. But then, you know, when two human beings sit down and talk and, you know, one has the courage to tell their story, there's so much more that comes out of it. And again, as much as I know the mold conversation is going to have a you know a huge effect because I know we all live in houses and buildings and everything. You know, the, this side I think is so important to discuss as well. And the more of these stories that people hear, the more they realize that they're not weak and they're not alone. And there absolutely is, is hope and help out there. You just have to find whatever that kind of, you know, final door that opens for you, that door of realization that sends you on your own personal path. No doubt about it. And I, a big part of that, by the way, I should clarify that the 12 steps, what that does, what did for me was it gave me a community of people around me that I could, uh, my, all my friends, I mean, I have a lot of friends that still drink. It doesn't bother me. I have a neutral relationship. I have a, in fact, alcohol was my buddy for so long. I can't, I can't, you know, I, I wrote a letter, a thank you letter. Um, it was actually a breakup letter, but I said, listen, we're going to see each other. We're going to, but you know, we just can't hang out anymore. You know, I mean, it was one of those and, um, and I kept it because I didn't know where to send it. But um, 
but you know, I think that the community that you get from these kinds of things is super important. And and the isolation, it's the exact opposite of addiction. Addiction is about isolation, many cases, many times. And so the the ant the antidote to that is community. Um, it's connection. And by and connection, the thing that keeps me sober is my connection, my family and the people I'm out helping. And, you know, that whole thing is self-reinforcing. Um, and, uh, so, uh, you know, that any, anyone who's, who's struggling with that. No, I agree with you. This is the shame about addiction is the shame about addiction. Right. So the, the, the fact that people don't want to talk about it, exactly why we need to talk about it. And that's why it takes a loud mouth like me. You know, I have no problem sharing my story because a, I like to listen to myself talk. My ego loves it. But also really, I think that there's, there's some, there's someone here listening to this. That's going to go, holy shit, man. I need to just, I need to, I need to put my hand, I need to reach out. Um, and if, and if that one, if one person in, in, you know, amongst your listeners does that, then, you know, that this will have been worthwhile. Absolutely. Well, I think you know people would be curious to to learn more about the company, but I think what's more important to me is that we've heard the person and, and the why behind the company, and that really makes you know makes a, an organization that people absolutely should you know gravitate towards. So if people want to learn more about your mole company itself, find you on social media. Where are the best places for that? Sure. Um, again, we created a, a welcome page at gotmold.com slash behind the shield. Um, which is where you'll find the ebook as well as a coupon code for anybody that's interested in the test kit. There's a 10% off coupon code there. Um, you can always get in touch with me from the homepage there at, uh, uh, at gotmold.com. In, in the bottom of the homepage, there's a question field uh, or a contact field. Also, uh, we're just getting started on social media. Uh, and so we're facebook.com uh, slash gotmold and also Instagram gotmold. Uh, and then professionally uh, on LinkedIn, I'm also um, starting to get more active there. We were in in, in uh, stealth mode for the te- with the test kit for a long time, and so uh, having just launched a few months ago, we're we're starting to get our social media leg- legs underneath us. But um, and then you can always send uh, questions to questions at gotmold.com as well. Beautiful, and I'll put that link in the uh, webpage for this episode as well as so people find that jamesgearing.com on this episode. Perfect. Jason, I just want to say thank you. I mean, when I sit down with a few like words scribbled on a piece of paper, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. And it's been such an amazing conversation. So as I say to so many people, especially when they're visiting some elements of their life that, you know, may kind of be pulling the, the scab off the wound a little bit, having the courage to tell your story, obviously all the work that you've done on the mold side, which I know is going to, you know, move the needle on physical and mental health as well. But, uh, but also, you know, putting your story out there for others. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. Well, I can't thank you enough for being here. I, you know, it, it is stories that go unheard are, are, are not useful to anybody. And so, um, you know, if, 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 if anything, this is all about pay it forward. So um, if one thing can be useful to someone else here, then, then uh, that will make it all worthwhile. So thanks again, James. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 